Amen. Please do uh, take a seat. Well, it really is uh, so good to see you. Can I add my um, welcome to Case? Thank you so much. Uh, if you've joined us, particularly if you've joined us physically today, uh, it's always good to welcome folk back amongst us um, in person. Special welcome to folk uh, listening on the live stream as well. Just to introduce myself, I'm Chris. I have the real privilege of being involved in the mission, the leadership of the church here at CBC alongside Kay. Well, we've arrived at our third and our penultimate Sunday in our series, Hearts for Harvest. If you were with us uh, two Sundays ago, you'll remember we were zoomed in. We were close. We were personal. We were taking a microscopic view, thinking about the three great concerns of our faith. We thought about the great commandment uh, to love God wholeheartedly. We thought a bit about the, the great priority, that sense of pursuing the things of God above anything else. And then thirdly, we thought about the great commission to share our faith as we go uh, through everyday life. Last weekend, uh, Kay zoomed out a little bit from our first Sunday and we stopped looking at ourselves and thinking about ourselves and we started thinking about those who are helpless, those who are harassed. Uh, in the harvest field that Jesus spoke of. We looked at the example of Jesus, of how he had a heart of compassion uh, for those who he saw. Great quote from last weekend, compassion is a vivid verb, not a moment of pity, but a deep love and a different perspective. Wasn't that brilliant? Well, next Sunday, we're going to be taking a worldwide telescopic perspective when we're going to be hearing about God's really exciting call on the life of Esther Bolton as she prepares to head off on mission to New Uganda in the new year. But today we're going to be thinking about our part that we play together in transforming the communities and the towns which we're planted in. The challenge for us today is to care, or we might say to bloom, where we are planted. This morning we're going to be looking in our Bibles at a, a character called Nehemiah. He's an incredible character. Uh, Nehemiah was an ordinary man like you or me, if you are a man or anyway, you know what I mean. He wasn't a priest like um, Ezra. He wasn't a prophet like Malachi or Malachi for the Italians amongst you. Um, he wasn't even somebody who was particularly prestigious, but God gave him a vision. God gave him a vision and gave to him a burden in his heart for the transformation of the ruined city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had been ruined for a hundred years. It had been a disgrace to the people of God. And Nehemiah does something about it. He encounters opposition and he has miraculous provision from God. And Nehemiah somehow manages to fulfill this huge vision that God gave him in an incredible 52 days. If you want to know why it was incredible, read the whole of the story um, at some point. But what I want us to see today from Nehemiah is this, is in Nehemiah we find a recipe. And it's a recipe which is always true and is even true for us today in the economy of God. A little bit of faith, seasoned with God's vision, plus the burden of God marinating in our hearts creates holy discontent within us that can transform our communities or the environments within which we live in or we're planted in. From the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, we discover that Nehemiah was God's person in God's place at just the right time, and God used him mightily because he had faith and he was faithful. And here's the really exciting news for us, I think, today, is that we too can be God's person. 
in God's place at the right time, and God can use us mightily as well, in small ways and sometimes in really big ways, if we'll just bloom, if we'll just step up and step out, if we'll just uh, be faithful and obedient to the stirring that God has uh, within our hearts with that holy discontent. Well, the, the, the words at the end of Nehemiah chapter two, um, 2 perfectly reveal uh, why Nehemiah had this holy discontent. I'll read them to you. It says this, verse 18. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. We're in a bad way here. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be a disgrace. As I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me, they replied, let us start rebuilding. Uh, That's the Chris Brockway kind of dramatic version. They roll up their sleeves, they begin this good work, and then in verse 20 it says, the God of heaven will give us success. The God of heaven will give us success. Well, today we pick up the stories, if you want to try and find it in your Bible. It's one of those books that disappears, though, so be warned. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, this is the action chapter. It's the point where Nehemiah brings together a wildly eclectic mix of priests and goldsmiths and government officials and mayors and merchants and regular Joe public to pick up some tools and start rebuilding the city walls. Just as a quick aside, by the way, here, God has a funny habit of using unlikely eclectic mixes of people to transform communities. Today, he calls it the church. And if you don't believe me, just take a quick look around you. You'll see what I mean. What a smorgasbord of wonderful people we are. And we need to remind ourselves today that that thrills the heart of God. Unity and diversity together thrills the heart of God. Whatever our shape, our size, our maturity, our ethnicity, God invites us today to join in with what he's up to in the world. What an invitation. Now, if you're somebody that prays, and I hope that's most of us, can I encourage you to start praying for me now uh, as I read Nehemiah chapter 3. I give you consent to laugh at me. Um, Pity me too, because this is now on the World Wide Web. Let's see what happens. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and they set the doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zakurh built next to them. He was French, clearly. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth repaired the section, uh, the next section. Next to him, Meshulium made repairs, and next to him, Zadok also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Decoa, but their nobles would not put a shoulder to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshaniha gate was repaired by Joadia and Meshulaham. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and their bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mithpath, out of Gibeon and Jahanan of that place, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. Uzziah El, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Repaniah, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush made repairs next to him. 
I haven't finished. Verse 20. <laughs> Next to him, Barak zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. I bet you're grateful I didn't read the whole of chapter 3, and I bet you're grateful I cheated on all the father's names. This is where we're up to in summary with the story. The building is underway. This, this vision has been birthed. Things are happening fast, and the walls are starting to go up. God's vision is starting to be fulfilled. Why? Because Nehemiah is a man who in this moment is blooming in the place where God has planted him. In fact, he's blooming marvelous. But right now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, why did God include Nehemiah chapter 3 with all those unpronounceable names in Scripture? What was the point of it? And I think it's a really good question, and if you weren't thinking of the question, you are now. In the past, you've probably heard lots of sermons from Nehemiah chapter 3 about Nehemiah's incredible leadership skill, his ability to delegate, to think strategically, to honor the names of those who serve, to overcome opposition, and I've preached all those leadership sermons myself. But today, I want us to take a look at chapter 3 to see the importance of at least two things. Firstly, the importance of working together to accomplish God's purpose in the place and with the people where God has planted us. But secondly, I want us to respond, um, see that we need to respond to everything that God places in our path on our journey of faith. This morning, we're invited to bloom together. Three things to consider about his mission or his harvest. We're invited to join in next two. Secondly, we're invited to join in in front of. And then thirdly, we're invited to join in with devotement. So our first principle for caring where we're planted or blooming where we're planted is to join in next to. You know, it seems to me that there's something very important about the repetition of this phase in those verses that we read. In fact, if you read the whole of chapter 3, you'll see that repetition over 20 times. So-and-so built here, next to him was Fred, and next to Fred was Brenda, and the couple next to Brenda, well, they were building here, and next to them was this business owner who built in front of his business, and so it goes on. The principle of next to or alongside. And I think it's a really important principle for us to grasp as individuals, but too for us as a church. This phrase reminds us of the importance of fulfilling our purpose and finding our place as an essential link in the chain of all that God is seeking to work out in his plans and purposes. And in order to do that effectively, we know for sure that we need one another. But I want us not to miss something this morning, is if the mission and the ministry of God is going to happen effectively, then we need the contribution that only we, only I can make too. Now, we'll explore the, the, the positives of this next two principle in just a moment, but let's deal with the negative that's in the story first. What we learn from this story is if we don't play our part, we will miss out. Did you notice that as well as listing all the people who were marvelous, interestingly, there's one group of people that Nehemiah signals out or singles out as being blooming awful. It's the nobles of Decoa. It's the posh people, the important people of Decoa we discovered they refused to join in with the project. They didn't care, and they became uncooperative. And what's really brilliant here in the story is that to the noble shame, Nehemiah points out later on, if you read it, that the people of Decoa joined in, even if the nobles of Decoa didn't. They got busy on two sections of, of the wall. Interestingly, though, you notice Nehemiah did not waste any of his energy on the nobles of Decoa. Instead, he worked with the people 
who would be willing workers. Well, what are the learning point here? Maybe there's two things. Firstly, don't waste your energy trying to mobilize people who don't care about the place where God has planted them. We learn that from Nehemiah. It's a complete waste of effort because they're unlikely to bloom. And then secondly, which I think is such a tragedy, we learn from this story, those who don't get involved, who don't care where God has planted them, who don't bloom, are ultimately losers in the story in the long run. They miss out. Anyway, let's get, let's get back to the positive, shall we? Nehemiah very wisely breaks down this big, tool of re, uh, the big task of rebuilding this massive wall into manageable chunks. And in doing so, he deploys this principle that I've coined as the next two principle. Uh, no, it's not very catchy, is it? I don't think I'm going to be writing any books on it. But the truly amazing thing about this story is that the whole wall around Jerusalem was being built at the same time. Nehemiah had all of the people, everyone in the body, we might say, working on the wall in strategic locations around the city at the same time. Why did he do that? Because it simply wouldn't have worked if one guy built his section but didn't then interlock it with the section that was being or due to be built next to him. Now, if ever you've played with Lego, you'll understand this principle. If you don't interlock, the whole thing falls apart. Now, I think about myself, if I was Nehemiah and project managing this, it would have taken more than 52 days because I think I might have been tempted to begin building in one spot and then move to the next and the next and the next and so on around the wall rather than doing it all at the same time. But in Nehemiah's strategy, the end outcome is that the individual bits and pieces that were being put together eventually contributed towards the completed whole. What a beautiful image of how God is at work in the world. Didn't we see that in the example of the food bank this morning? God is calling individuals and groups of people and churches to manage chunks of his kingdom work. And when we've done our chunk, it contributes towards the whole and transformation comes to society. Never underestimate the tiny contribution that you might be making because it's all an important piece in God's master plan in the jigsaw that he's putting together. So Nehemiah coordinates the project so that all the parts fit together. Next to him, after her, alongside them, every single person, a vital link in enabling the work of others. And I think that's a really important principle. Working next to somebody else is always an encouragement, isn't it? Particularly if you're competitive like me, I'll try and work quicker than you. But two, when you think about it, so often in life, the work that we're doing complements the work of another. The work of another complements the work that we're doing. And if we don't work alongside one another, somehow the work doesn't get completed. That's true of the kingdom of God. I've experienced it so many times over and over and over again. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the principle of next to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted the seed, says Paul, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, one vision, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. Now, if you were with us last weekend, you would have heard this amazing story of how exactly this principle has happened in the life of our church. One person praying combined with a completely different person giving a word of encouragement literally saved the life of another person in the last couple of weeks. 
And as I tell this story, I'm very aware that one link in the chain has sat with us in this service. As I told this story in the first service, the other link was in the first service, and they didn't even know that one another were at work. That's how God works in his kingdom. Each person knew which task was theirs, and they did it. They did it in harmony. They did it in conjunction with one another, next to, even if they didn't know that's what they were doing. Here's an image for your mind if you think in pictures. One blooming flower on its own is beautiful. By blooming there, I mean boof. One blooming flower on its own is beautiful, but a whole garden of blooming flowers with God as the gardener is awe-inspiringly breathtaking. Welcome to the garden. Come and bloom in the garden alongside others. That's what the church can look like when it's being really effective. And I just wonder for you this morning, who is it that God is calling you to bloom alongside? How might God already be using you as a Paul, as a seed planter? Or maybe you're the Apollos who comes to water the seed that Paul has put down with your watering can. Your contribution matters in the mission and the ministry of God. The challenge is to be like the blooming people of Tekoa, not like the blooming disinterested nobles. The first principle next two. And as so often with my sermons, the next two points are much quicker. One of the other really interesting ways that Nehemiah gets the job done so efficiently, but also so effectively, is capitalizing on what sociologists and psychologists sometimes call the preservation uh, motive, the self-preservation motive. It's a very fancy kind of less accusatory way of saying that people primarily in life look after their their own interests, the self-preservation motive. And Nehemiah chapter 3 makes the point at least four times that many of the people were working opposite their house or in front of their house or beside their house. So we've already explored this principle of joining in next to, but the verses we're looking at now remind us that we're also called to give attention to that which is immediately in front of us, in front of. You know, it really didn't bother Nehemiah, as you read the story, whether people worked nearby their homes or businesses or not. In fact, the the reason they were was probably deliberate. Why? Because it provided great motivation and assurance that they would do their best work because it would directly affect their security and their survival, as well as the security and the survival of their family and the city. If you know for sure that an enemy is going to pop up over the wall, you definitely don't want them popping up in front of your house. So you make the wall big and you make it strong in that place. Making the city better and more secure, especially where you live, is such good motivation, isn't it, for increased productivity, but too for action. Maybe you've experienced this a bit in your own life. Maybe you had that project that you've procrastinated about for years, and then suddenly someone says something, or something's about to happen, and then something changes inside you, because, and then suddenly you want to try and act upon it. For us, it's clean the house before the relatives come, or anyone from church comes around to visit, and they think we live in a mess. Maybe you suddenly see the value of getting a job done, despite the fact that you've looked at your weed-overgrown garden for years. You suddenly one day decide, today's the day for action, and I'm going to landscape it. It's the big green uh, week this week, beginning, so why don't we have a think about the, the problem of litter in Christchurch. My guess is you're much more diligent about the litter in your own front garden than you are about the litter that's blowing around on Christchurch Quay. I'm exactly the same, so don't feel too guilty. 
In everyday life, we tend to deal with what is in front of us, and oftentimes, it's motivated by this self-preservation motive. It works its way out in very practical ways. I challenge you to look out for it this week. So Nehemiah is really wise in assigning people to work on the portion of the wall that they had a particular interest in, the in-front-of strategy. So as we read in the story, there were the priests, and they were working, in a sense, at their place of work. They were working on the sheep gate, we discover in verse 1. It's the place where the people would bring the sacrifices to the temple. It's in their best interest to make sure that that worked effectively and maybe was even beautiful. Others, as we've heard, repaired the walls in front of their own homes. And sure, they were doing it in a sense out of personal incentive, and they did a good job for selfish reasons, but I'd want to suggest today, too, that this wasn't entirely selfish, because it was also achieving a much bigger kingdom purpose. Do you know, during the course of the average week, I have so many conversations with people who say to me something like, I'm really trying to find that one thing that God wants me to do. I'd love to try and work out what it is that God is calling me to. Maybe you've had that uh, thought yourself. And nearly always, my response is this. What is it that is immediately in front of you? What is it that God has already placed on your path because the chances are he's calling you to deal with that? What is it that God's already stirring that kind of holy discontent within you? Begin with that thing because there's a high chance that's what God is calling you to deal with. A few examples, perhaps, for us. You walk through the subway in Christchurch every day, and you see that same homeless individual who's always there. Well, maybe today's the day to deal with what's in front of us and to bless him somehow. Maybe in front of your house, you see a neighbor struggle by who's struggling to manage their shopping, or they mention that their garden's a really difficult thing. Maybe God is calling us to deal with that which is immediately in front of us. For those of us who endure the school pickup every single day, Just maybe it's right for us to look out for the people who are isolated in that school playground and to bring them into the group or to bring them into community. Over recent weeks, we won't have avoided the the crises that are happening all over the world. And just maybe we feel that discontent within us that God is stirring us to give some of our resources to make a difference to the situation in Afghanistan or wherever else in the world. Maybe today even you're wrestling with that holy discontent about the state and the mess that we're making of creation. Why not celebrate the good things that you're already doing and make sure that you add them to the tree? But two, be on the lookout for other things that God is putting in front of you in that area that he's calling you to respond to. So here's the challenge. To respond to what God has placed in front of us or to respond to the sense of holy discontent that's stirring right in front of you, even now. Next to, in front of. If you're part of uh, one of our small groups, you'll, you'll know that the opening question to most Bible studies is often something like, what particularly stands out or struck you as you read the text? A couple of weeks ago, I thought it was brilliant, Kay added in the word, what excites you? What strikes you, excites you, or stands out for you as you read the text? And as I read Nehemiah chapter 3, it's verse 20, which is why I read it. Next to him, well, there it is again, next to him, Barak zealously repaired another section. He zealously repaired another section of the wall. What a contrast this individual is to those awful noblemen that are listed in chapter, in verse 5. 
In fact, what we discover about this chap, Baruch, if that's how you say his name, is that he's so special that Nehemiah does something next to his name, which he doesn't do for anyone else who's working on the wall. He adds in a word, an adverb about his work, and he says, this man worked zealously. I love that word. It's kind of got that sense of uh, an investment that's been made. He's invested his heart into this project. He's going to work seriously for it, and as he does it, he's doing it with all of his heart and with all of his soul. You see, Barak was a man who was committed to the things of God, not just in a kind of cursory, light-hearted, yeah, 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 I did it tomorrow kind of a way, but here was a man who had a heart investment and devotion. You might be wondering where that ridiculous word devotement comes from that's up on the screen. It is actually a real word. Um, It does really exist, even though we don't tend to use it very often. I really admire your devotement to the cause. There you go. I'm giving an English lesson today. The reason it's on the screen is I've used it very deliberately. We had a leadership team at Away Day last weekend, and we were talking about what commitment looks like in the life of a church community. And we were wrestling with this idea, well, you can be committed in so many ways, can't you? You can be committed, and you can be really committed. And it seems to me that those who are committed or really committed versus those who are just committed is the really committed people have got a heart investment. Uh, in, in the thing that we're about. And on our leadership day, we took these two words, commitment and devotement, and we fused them together into what we thought we were making up a word, which is devotement, which is where that word comes from. We're called to join in this mission and this ministry, this harvest that God is about with devotement. It reminds me of the words of Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart, with devotion, as working for the Lord, um, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive, here it comes again, another reward that's mentioned, a heavenly reward. You'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Jesus Christ you're serving when you serve with devotion. As we join in, as we partner with those around us who are next to us, as we respond to all that God is placing in front of us, the challenge is to do it with investment, with a heart, devotment. A little faith seasoned with God's vision plus God's burden marinating in our hearts creates a holy discontent. And God says, will you respond to that holy discontent I'm stirring within you? Because when you do, it can change and it can transform the community that you live in. What an invitation. The challenge to respond to that next to to respond to that which God places in front of, and to do so with devotion. And if we've made up that word, I'm claiming it. If we haven't, God bless the Oxford Dictionary. I wonder what God is stirring in you right now. Are you somebody who's wrestled with that question for such a long time? God, would you reveal to me where it is you're calling me to serve? There's a high chance it's already next to you there's a high chance it's already in front of you. Let's respond next to or in front of with devotion. Can we pray together as we try and pull all the, the strands and the strings of this story together? Lord, I just want to invite you this morning to move by your spirit as only you can <laughs> to somehow take my words, to make them your words, 
to continue the job that you've already begun in stirring in our hearts an even greater passion for your name. Lord, I thank you for Nehemiah. Lord, we, we honor the incredible leadership skills that he has. But, Lord, before we ever get to hear about Nehemiah's leadership, in chapter 1, we hear about his devotion to you. Lord, call us back, I pray today, to our first love. Call us back into a deeper relationship with you. That we would have eyes and a heart that can respond to what you're doing in us and through us. Holy Spirit, come. Stir up that holy discontentment within us until we respond to it. sense for some of us today it's um it's something new God is calling us to and maybe that feels a bit scary and for you today I want to pray Holy Spirit come and give courage and give boldness to take that first step for others of us today I just really sense that God is just wanting to affirm what you're already doing in his name and for his sake would you keep on doing it with even greater passion if that's possible Lord, burn that passion deeper within our souls, I pray. And then maybe there's another group of us today who for some time have been wrestling with that question of what God has for us. And he's just revealed to you this morning exactly what it is. And guess what? It was right next to you already. It was already right in front of you. Lord, again, I pray, give us courage and give us boldness to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.